Welcome to this sermon from Silver Lake Baptist Church. Our mission is to celebrate the greatness of God with all we are for the joy, hope, and renewal of our community. We are so glad you have chosen to listen to our message. We pray you will be blessed by your time with us today. So my question is today, what does it mean to be victorious? Pencil. It's defined as having won a victory or triumphed over something. It is often used to describe someone who, was, who has won a victory in a struggle, war, or competition. I like to use the word triumphed as well. Have you ever won a victory over something? How did it make you feel? What about a team or a cause that you supported throughout a season? When they won, did you feel their victory as it was your own? What about you? Would you say you are living a victorious life? Constantly and sometimes struggling with um, things of your life, but ultimately winning. You triumphed over that. How did it make you feel? What about the Apostle Paul? Would you say he lived a victorious life? Scripture has a whole lot to say about this season in Paul's life. Back in Acts 21, Paul arrived in Jerusalem. Paul went there both to worship and to bring the uh, generous love offering for the poor Christians there in the city. After Paul got to Jerusalem, he was nearly murdered three different times. He was also prisonered by the Roman governor in Caesarea for at least two years. Now in Acts 26 is where we're going to be. Paul is in the middle of the fourth trial where he faced the death penalty again. Begins here in verse 1 when we look back at that. It says, Then Agrippa said to Paul, You are permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand and he answered for himself. I think myself happy, King Agrippa, he said. Because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things which I am accused of by the Jews. Especially because you are an expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. With this background in mind, we're going to read about the trial starting in Acts 26, verse 19. It starts off, So then King Agrippa I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all of Judea, and then to the Gentiles. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we just thank you for this time together. Again, we thank you for bringing us in this room to hear the gospel that you wrote so many years ago father that you gave word to them through so many and father we just thank you for allowing us to bring these subjects up to look at them closely and to adhere to what you've taught us and what you mean to teach us thank you lord again for all that to come in jesus name we pray Amen. amen so if anybody ever lived a victorious christian life it was paul 
That's why in his letter to Timothy, in 2 Timothy 4, 7, Paul could write, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Could you say that? Would you like to say that at the end of your life? God wants all of us to have a victorious Christian life. And Paul pointed us to this truth in Romans 8, 35 through 37. There he said, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecutions or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. See, God wants us to have victorious Christian lives. And the scripture here helps us understand that. Victorious Christians believe the Bible. Victorious Christians believe the Bible. We believe the Bible, and this includes, of course, what we're reading today, the New Testament, and, of course, the New Testament that was being written as Paul spoke these very words before in the court. Paul began his testimony by telling the story of how Jesus miraculously met him on the road to Damascus. Then, starting in verse 22, or continuing in verse 22, Paul said, Therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand witness both to small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses would said would come. That the Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jews, the Jewish people, and to the Gentiles. Now, as he thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. But Paul, but he said, I am not mad, most notable Festus. But speak the words of truth and reason. For the king before whom I, who I also speak freely knows these things. For I am convinced that none of these things escape his attention since the, this thing was not done in a corner. See, Christ didn't do stuff quietly. It's not like he went to this little room and preached and nobody heard him. Jesus Christ was not, was not some kind of secret savior. He lived his life in a very open and public way. The story of Jesus we read in the New Testament was well known everywhere that Jesus went. John Phillips explained that Festus was a newcomer to the country. Agrippa, on the other hand, was at home there. He could not help but, not, but know about Jesus of Nazareth. For three and a half years, Jesus had preached crossing and recrossing the country from northern Galilee to Jerusalem. He had taught God's truth in, the, in an authoritative and unforgettable way. Who having heard them, could, who having heard them uh, preach could forget like the parable of the prodigal son or the Sermon on the Mount. Pretty sure if we were there, we would remember. Jesus had electrified the country from one side to the other with remarkable and numerous and spectacular miracles. People by the hundreds had been healed. Thousands had feasted on a few loaves of fish miraculously multiplied from a little boy's lunch. Demons recognized Jesus and fled at his command. 
The very dead had been raised. On top of that, he had lived a life of, an, of what I called immaculate holiness, combined with an all-embracing compassion and love. The Lord's illegal trial and crucifixion, his burial in the tomb of one of the wealthiest men and influential Jews in the country, his subsequent resurrection had rocked the country. Everybody heard about it. Christ had appeared again and again on one occasion to more than 500 credible witnesses. Nothing but deliberate refusal to face these facts could account for unbelief. You couldn't deny it. You saw them yourself. What would you say? Oh, I didn't have it. That's why we have every reason to believe in the New Testament. We believe also in the Old Testament. Paul mentioned at his trial again in verse 22, 23, he said again, Therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand witness both to small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that the Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead, and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Going down to verse 27, it said, Paul put this soul-searching question to King Agrippa. Do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. See, I didn't know if Paul was like wrong about that because there's no biblical evidence that King Agrippa really believed the Old Testament prophecies. Maybe he did. Paul said it. It's in the Bible. We believe it. And as Christians, we believe, we believe. And we should believe because so many of the Old Testament prophecies have come true. Think for a second how hard it was to predict the future. Let me give you some examples. There's a book called The World's Worst Predictions. In 1773, King George II said the American colonies had little stomach for revolution. Pretty sure we did. In 1939, the New York Times said the problem with TV was that people had to glue their eyes to a screen. Uh, and the average American wouldn't have time for that. On May 31st, 1911, at the launch of the Titanic, Titanic, an employee of the White Star Line arrogantly said, not even God himself could sink this ship. Less than a year later, 1,500 people died went, when the ship went down on April 15, 1912. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but God sees the end from the beginning. Isaiah 46, 9, 10. Remember, from, the, from, from former things of old, and for I am God, then there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. See, God sees the end from the beginning, and he has revealed it in his word. Consider the Old Testament prophecies about Jesus. An online source, which I forgot to list down, listed over 350 Old Testament prophecies that Jesus fulfilled when he was on the earth. 350 of them. Here's just a few examples. Let me give you. About a thousand years before Christ, 
Psalm 27, or 2 7, sorry, Psalm 2 7 prophesies that the Messiah would be the Son of God. There, the coming Messiah said, I will declare the, the decree. The Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have gotten you. This prophecy was fulfilled many, in many places, including at the baptism of Jesus. Matthew 3.17 Suddenly a voice came from heaven, saying, This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. It was written over a thousand years before that. Around 725 B.C., Micah 5.2 prophesied that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Said, but, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrata, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth has been from old, from everlasting. See, the Christmas stories that we always love in Matthew 2 and Luke 2, they show that this prophecy was fulfilled. A few years after Micah, Hosea 11.1 1, prophesied that the Messiah would be called out of Egypt. When Israel was a child, I, was, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. See, this prophecy was fulfilled in Matthew, uh, Matthew 2, when King Herod had sent his soldiers to murder the baby boys in Bethlehem. Matthew 2.13-15 says, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to, the jo to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise. Take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word. For Herod will seek, to, seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. About 520 B.C., Zechariah 11.12 prophesies that the Messiah would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. So they weighed out for my wages 30 pieces of silver, it said. Where was this prophesied? Where does this prophecy come true? Matthew 26, 14-16. Then one of the twelve called Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. So from that time, he sought opportunity to betray him. And a thousand years before Christ, by the mouth of King David, God prophesies how the Messiah would die. Psalm twenty-two, sixteen: For dogs have surrounded me, the assembly of the wicked has enclosed me, the pierce, they pierce my hands and my feet. Wow. No wonder we believe the Bible. All these things came true. And many, many more after that. Believing the Bible is crucial because nobody can be saved without believing God's word. And nobody can be victorious, be a victorious Christian without believing the Bible. Victorious Christians believe the Bible. They also recognize the danger of rejecting Jesus. See, in verse 28, this is the catastrophe unfolding here. When Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuaded me to become a Christian. Agrippa was almost persuaded. He was almost persuaded to be a Christian. You remember that? Almost persuaded. He was almost persuaded to be saved. But to be almost persuaded is to be altogether eternally lost. Billy Graham famously preached on this in 1962. 
in at Soldier Field in Chicago. It was hot. I mean, really hot. Summertime. Thousands, because he was in the middle of that Soldier Field and thousands surrounded him. And they had to cut his actually his, uh, his his sermon short because it was so hot that everybody was starting to pass out. So they let everybody go, but he had to fulfill some time. So he stood there in that heat, talking just a few people in the crowd, and finished that song, that sermon about almost being persuaded. <laughs> Minister Bill Booknight explained that the word almost is. As sad a word in anybody's dictionary. It keeps company with expressions like if only and not quite. Almost is, is a word that smacks of missed mis, uh, opportunities and fumbled chances. Swimmer Tim McGee was a three-time winner of silver medal in the Olympics. In the 1972 Games in Munich, Tim was edged out of a gold medal by two thousandths of a second. Was he fast enough to win a gold? Almost. No doubt Tim could have disappointed, been disappointed for weeks or even years, but no earthly disappointment can compare to the non-stop eternal despair of knowing you were almost saved. Almost saved, but altogether eternally lost. See, Paul recognized the uh, catastrophic danger of rejecting Jesus. So in verse 29, he spoke to King Agrippa and everyone in the courtroom that day. And Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. I don't want that. See, he made a subtle altar call right there. Come to Jesus, basically, he was saying, all who hear me before it's too late. Victorious Christians recognize the danger of rejecting Jesus and they are undefeated by unfairness. They are undefeated by unfairness. See, victorious Christians are undefeated by the unfairness in life. Who said? Life is fair. This is God's message for all of us. See, at the close of Paul's trial in that ungodly legal system that they had verse 30 and 32 30 through 32 he says when he had said these things the king stood up as well as the governor and Bernice then those who sat with him and when they had gone aside they talked among themselves saying this man's done nothing worthy of death and chains and Agrippa said to Festus this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar Talk about catch-22. It's a no-win situation. If Paul had allowed himself to be sent back to Jerusalem for the trial before the Jewish high council, he almost certainly would have been killed. Or somewhere along the way he would have. The appeal to Caesar saved Paul's life, but the appeals to Caesar were irreversible under Roman law. So even though the governor and the king knew without a doubt that Paul was innocent, they couldn't let him go. See, life is not fair. Many, many times over, we've bore witness to countless acts of violence to innocent men, women, and children at the hands of evil people. At churches around the world, in places where they were, they felt safe. 
how, or even right now, how fellow Christians at this very moment are being tortured and killed for their faith. That would seem unfair, wouldn't it? But God is good. How can you say that? What with all this going on? God is good. Robert Schuller once wrote a book with that title, Life's Not Fair, But God is Good. And victorious Christians are undefeated by the unfairness of life. I want you to repeat that. This part. Victorious Christians are undefeated by the unfairness of life. Why? Because we know who wins in the end. And we will be there to see it. Many of the greatest heroes of our faith have suffered incredible hardship for the good news about Jesus. Over and over we've seen Paul suffer for Jesus. Paul was beaten, stoned, and almost torn apart and held prisoner for two years. He wasn't surprised by all that. When Paul met the Lord on the road to Damascus years before, he was struck blind by the glory of God. Paul was then led into Damascus, and the Lord sent a local Christian to help him. They shouldn't call him Christian yet, but he was a believer. Looking back at Acts 9, 10 through 16, God's word says, There was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in the vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise, and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for being, behold, he is praying. And in a vision, Paul, he had seen a man named Ananias come in and putting his hands on him so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief priests to blind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And he did. See, many of God's bests have suffered the worst of the gospel, the words, worst of the gospel of Jesus Christ. <coughs> Why were they willing to do that? Because they realized the incredible value of the good news and because they never lost sight of how much Jesus suffered for us. We sometimes suffer loss and heartbreak. As Christians, we are made ready for these things by the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah 50 Verse 4, the Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear at the learned. As the learned, the Lord God has opened my ear and I was, I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out my beard. I did not notice my, or did not hide my face from shame and spitting. For the Lord God will help me, therefore I will not be disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. 
Can we all say that? Isaiah 53. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has said, has laid to him the iniquity of all of us. That's why Paul and countless other Christians have been willing to suffer for the Lord. May God help us all to be more like them. And we can be like them. We can be victorious Christians. Romans 8.35 says, Who shall reparate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. A reporter asked a question to the Oklahoma softball team after they won their second straight national championship. Undefeated season. I'm not saying it's Oklahoma just because Pastor James, but it's true. He asked a question about how after such a long season with hardships and fatigue and anxiety, were they able to keep the joy and, and excitement to last so long and win their championship? One of the, the athletes answered, she said, the only way you can have a joy that doesn't fade away is from the Lord. Pretty sure that ESPN reporter was quite taken back by that. And any other type of joy is happiness. Happiness that comes from circumstances and outcomes. But joy from the Lord is the only thing that can keep you motivated and in a good mindset no matter the outcome. Joy from the Lord is the only way because in sports, softball in their case, there is so much failure in it. That's the kind of love God gives us and how we can be victorious in such a failing world. We think about all the things that we go through day and day, uh, day and night. Suffering, consequence to actions, our loved ones, when they pass or when they fail. We think about all these things too much. Why? Because God is good. We don't need to worry about those things. All we have to do is seek the Lord in everything that we hold near and dear. You give that to God. I think about my son. He's getting ready to graduate. And, of course, I think about those of you who recently graduated or graduated a while back that 
for 12 years in school, you suffered. You went through a lot of heartaches. You went through things that you thought were impossible. And they say, oh, I got to go to school again. But what happens? You persevered. You suffered in, in your way. But that's so minimalistic to what God suffered for us. He gave us his life so that we may live. He gave us a hope that this, what I said, failing world does not give. What is parents, we want our children to succeed, be victorious in their schooling, to be prepared to go out in this world, not to show how smart you were because you listened to your teacher, but how smart you were by listening to the word of God. He's the only one that would prepare you to deal with this world. Giving up his life that you may live. I thank God for the victory we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. In that victory, we can all share and believe that it's our own. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we just thank you again for today. We thank you for giving us so very, very much. We thank you for allowing us to en enjoy the moments that you've given us, but truly know what love is and the everlasting impl implication that your sacrifice gave. Lord, Father, we just ask for your love and continuous guidance that we may continue to serve you, honor you in all that we do, spread the word, and give ourselves to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, check out our website at www.silverlakebaptist.org.